2014 from Cinema Journal Presents Acamedia. We are back in your life for now our second calendar year of existence, Michael. We carried it through in 2014. Happy 2014. Yay. We're currently, of course, on what becomes called break, but uh, this doesn't mean what, of course, some people think it means, that we're on vacation. It's Uh, syllabus writing season. It is syllabus writing season, yes. And whatever little bit of a research project writing you can get done Mm -hmm. during break as well. So, which is both an exciting time. It's really fun to, I'm putting together a new syllabus for a class on media industry. So I'm super excited. Very excited about that. Um, But it's also really intimidating, especially a new class where you think, oh, I'll do this. And then... You have no idea if it's going to work, and you'll be in the middle of the semester, and everything is crumbling around the you. Fi- the vicissitudes of reality intervene. And- exactly. Yeah. Yes. Although that's fitting for media industries, because it's the same things happen with media industries. They release a movie and have no idea what's going to happen with it, right. and so it's like it's a, a meta experience, perhaps. Maybe you need like uh, I don't know, like Tom Schatz to drop in and say, "Well, what do you got, kid?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm actually hoping to, in fact, uh, do some Skype interviews into the class. You know, people nice. in the industry, of, we're, of course, in Indiana, which isn't all that close to the heartbeat of the uh, entertainment industry. So uh, I like to do some Skype interviews. So if anyone out there, famous person working in film or TV, and you want to Skype into my class, let me know. It's a great idea. Yep. Well, we have a great podcast for you. We have, uh, Michael has done our Cinema Journal Presents interview. And then I have done a piece on SIGs. And a SIG is? scholarly interest group within SCMS. So you're going to learn all about them. If you didn't know about them before, you will really know them after this podcast. All right. Without further ado, uh, I think you will enjoy this conversation I had recently with Michael Harris. Michael W. Harris recently completed his PhD in musicology at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he teaches courses in rock history, the American musical, and music appreciation. He joins us today to discuss his recent Cinema Journal article, Jazzing in the Tokyo Slum, Music, Influence, and Censorship in Akira Kurosawa's Drunken Angel. The article explores the traces of G.W. Papp's film adaptation of the Three Penny Opera and its iconic song, Mac the Knife, in Kurosawa's 1947 film. Michael Harris, welcome to Acamedia. Thank you for having me. What do we need to know about the cultural and political context of this film's production? Well, um, there's a couple of major issues, and they all have to revolve around um, what was going on in Japan after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, Japan lost the war, and immediately the American army sent in um, just you know troops to help you know clean up the situation, but also tons of people to sort of put Japan on a democratic um, sort of path to become a firm ally of the United States in what was increasingly become, becoming a more communist region. And they mm-hmm. did that not only through government reforms, economic reforms, but also cultural reforms. They really wanted to change, you know, the sort of history of Japan is very steeped in you know, warrior culture, and um, which was amped up to a sort of superiority of the Japanese race um, in the rhetoric leading up to World War II. And so they wanted to make sure that films, music, all kind of promoted a more American ideal of a peaceful nation, Mm -hmm. if you will. 
And for Drunken Angel, this sort of manifested in a couple ways. One, you had the gangsters who were running this slum in Tokyo, which was the a point of many um, discussions between Kurosawa and the censors. But also, um, with this, Kurosawa wanted to use a lot of music from Mac from uh, the Three Penny Opera, and between copyright issues and possibly um, questionable content with the song Mac the Knife, they eventually dropped it. But exactly mm-hmm. why this happened and what were possibly the forces in play is what I really kind of tried to get down to, it, especially towards the end of the article, and how possibly these connections between the Three Penny Opera, both in terms of music and plot, maybe influenced Kurosawa mm-hmm. and his composer, Fumio Hayasaka. Mm-hmm. So what did... What did jazz represent in in the world of this film? Well, jazz jazz has a long history in Japan. It was popular, you know, early on in the nineteen twenties and thirties, and was um, a source of censorship for the war, for the wartime government um, because it's very American. It for mm-hmm. so many cultures, jazz is the iconic American music. It's representative of, you know. Freedom. It's representative of the more you know that exciting lifestyle of America, the fast pace, um, somewhat loose idea you know with American playing with sexuality, all these sort of issues. Right. Think of um, I for having just recently seen Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby. You know that's all part of that that right. jazz age. But for him, he uses rap music to kind of get that same feeling that jazz might have had in the twenties. Mm-hmm. So. After the war, jazz, of course, came back, you know, not only with American troops, but also just the Japanese people reclaiming this music that they had loved. And in the movie, it represents the gangsters. It's, you know, that's their lifestyle. This is their music. Which was which was exactly what the censors weren't too crazy about. No, they were not. They they (laughs) um, they they didn't like that because this is American music representing gangsters who are sort of following an American mold. They dress like Americans. They have a more American lifestyle with, you know, you know, dancing and all these other things, you know, very, very much, you know, being more open about Uh um, emotions, which is something that American censors did promote. They wanted to promote more um, free, open expression of emotion and some sexuality, but of course, not too much. Mm -hmm. And jazz sort of embodied that, which is why maybe the censors should have thrown up a little bit more of the stink about jazz, but... Music and music with censorship was always something that it they weren't always consistent with how they censored it, and I think it came down to a lot of times these censors were just regular American GIs sometimes, and they didn't quite know exactly what all the things that were in play right. with the music. Right now, does does a, a version of Mac the Knife actually show up in the film, or is it referenced musically? Does it is it invoked, or is it or is this more a kind of behind the scenes struggle? It, it was a behind-the-scenes struggle. It was in. It was very clearly in a lot of Kurosawa's early scripts. Um, um, in my article, I actually have one of the one of the um, images I have is from one of these scripts he submitted, and he indicated where he wanted it, and it was translated in the script as Mackie the Dagger Man. And one of the things that um, I think sometimes get overlooked because we know this song so well in our culture from Louis Armstrong, Bobby Darin. In 1947, 48, around this period, those hadn't come out yet. Most Americans would not have been familiar with this. The Three Penny Opera had a very limited run in America, and had actually been suppressed in Germany by the Nazis as degenerate art. And so 
an American censor actually knowing this song, it probably would have been iffy. For me, I think the censor's question of the little handwritten note that he had and why um, the censor objected possibly to it was it very clearly uh, referenced a bladed weapon. Mm -hmm. You know, swords, daggers, short swords, these were all icons of, you know, Japanese, you know, the samurai culture, the warrior culture. And the question, as I read it, um, it's kind of unclear. It's kind of hard to make out what the words are. But I read the question as, is this a feudalistic song? Thinking that maybe this was a, you know, old Japanese song that referenced feudal ideals. And that was his question. One of the things that I thought was great that you included in your article was to actually show the image of that page from the archives. And then you talk about how, you know, it's, that in itself becomes a, an act of interpretation because you're trying to decipher these handwritten comments and stuff. Yeah. And part of the reason I did this is that um, what my first version of this paper that I wrote um, for one of my classes when I was at CU, um, this, the articles, I've been messing around with it for the better part of like four years now before finally it shows up. And there was a, one, one book that sort of guided a lot of this research was Lars Martin Sorensen's um, uh, film on Kurosawa and Ozu's films during the during this period, and he identified it as German, and I felt like I needed to include the image there because I'm so directly contradicting what he wrote. I was right. like, I got to show my proof here, mm-hmm. and and I and why I sort of I, I felt like I needed to unpack this, even though it's somewhat a small point. I felt like I needed to sort of bolster my argument yeah, with that. Yeah, well, and, and, and it's crucial, and I, and I really appreciated that that you took the time to unpack a little bit of what Mac the Knife would have represented in 1947, like how that, how that song would play. And yeah. as you say, especially for a censor who may well have just been, you know, a GI. Yeah. Who's not necessarily steeped in the culture and music of, of you know, the Weimar era in, in Germany. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's um it's actually an interesting period where how that all where that song comes from and that era the aesthetic the sound mm-hmm. yeah one of the things that I also noted about your article is that it really contributes to our understanding of Kurosawa as this deeply engaged participant in an international film culture mm-hmm. and you know not in any way a, a Japanese purist you know he's, this is not kind of a classicist yeah uh, uh, way of thinking about Japanese culture. So was Kurosawa a fan of German cinema, and was he a jazz fan? Um, he Kurosawa was very much he, he loved just about everything. I I know from his biography that he his autobiography, something like an autobiography, probably my favorite title of any book I read during my research. <laughs> it's just it's just so perfect. Um, I know from that you know he lists in some footnotes movies that he watched you know over the years and. He was familiar with this, and I wouldn't say German cinema in particular, but he was just a fan of all things. You know, he would watch anything and everything he'd get his hands on. Mm. In terms of jazz music, it seems like from what I've read and what I know, he was much more of a fan of European classical styles. Mm. Um, he loved classical music, and which was a a, a, pure, a uh, point of contention between him and his many composers. Um, one thing that I briefly touch on the article that I go into much more depth on in my dissertation and hopefully the book proposal I'm working on for the future. Um, uh, this film, you know, is his first film he worked with Fumio Hayasaka, who was the focus of my dissertation. And 
he, you know, Hayasaka was always having to deal with Kurosawa telling him, I want this piece to sound like this. I want this to sound like this. The famous example being the bolero during the woman's testimony in Rashomon. And, you know, so clearly is based on Ravel's famous piece. So he's always having to sort of imitate, and this shows up in Drunken Angel with a few pieces that kind of sound like Debussy. Um, but as for jazz, that is something that Kurosawa, I don't, I don't think, not from what I've read, never showed much affinity for, mm-hmm. but it was something that was very much in the air of, in the air in Japan post-war era. Right. And, and so, know, that, so that becomes then something that he parks in the underworld as the signifier yeah. of that kind of licentious yeah. culture. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Now, this film was instrumental in developing Kurosawa's relationship with Hayasaka, is that right? Yes, it was. It was their first film together, and it kind of set their their working relationship, you know, meeting before the film was even started production, you know, during script stages, and it really helped form this fast friendship between Kurosawa and Hayasaka, and, you know, Kurosawa was devastated when Hayasaka died in 1955 at only the age of 41. Mm. This is a project that seems to require really multiple literacies. You have to have an understanding of film studies and do work in film production history, but also obviously musicology, as well as an ability to read the popular music of not just uh, post-war occupied Japan, but also Weimar era Germany. So how did you develop these literacies? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, Let's start with film first. Um, I've I've only taken two film classes in my entire study in, in, you know, throughout school, one in undergrad on Italian film. And then this class I took um, here at CU in the course of my doctoral studies was a master's level class on just historiography of film and, you know, how history is written, these kind of things. And that was with um, Jennifer Peterson, uh, who was also ended up being a very important member of my dissertation committee. Uh-huh. But I've, I, you know, Anyone who gets into this thing of studying film and film music, I'm a lifelong fan of film and music, and I've just I've developed it sort of naturally, I guess. But I, I've, I had to do tons of reading on, you know, just general film history to kind of build up my own vocabulary for it, how to talk about it. Many, many talks with Dr. Peterson and others, you know, trying to make sure I'm competent at this before I dive fully in. And probably the biggest struggle I had though was trying to learn Japanese history and Japanese film history at the same time. And so that's where, you know, I had to you know really dive into the works of Donald Ritchie, Keiko McDonald, um, all these scholars who really um, helped me to kind of feel my way through as I was trying to learn the history of Japanese film. And then one of the, one of the biggest problems is just with dealing with the, any of, with the work of any other culture, make sure that you are not mistranslating, not literally translating the language, so that was another problem. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that you're understanding it as someone who is more of an insider would and not falsely um, depicting, you know, their culture, and especially with a culture that's 
in a post-war era, the losers of the war, you really do have to be sensitive to all these issues at play and that you're not reducing things to broad generalizations of culture. And it's something I'm still very nervous about yeah, at times. Yeah, and, understandably. But uh, I thought you handled that really gracefully in the article. Yeah. And of course, you know, a lot of these, you know, the people who are working on these on these films and preparing documents like for the censors and going through that ongoing debate, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily, they are speaking and writing to an audience, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not a purely internal conversation when there are American censors leaning over their shoulders, kind of scrutinizing what they're doing. And so they're already going through a kind of practice of self-representation mm-hmm. in, in that, um, in the context of occupation. So that seems like a really tricky set of layers to unravel. Yeah, and going through going through, going through the censorship documents when I was in um, D.C. going in the National Archives and um, actually in College Park, Maryland, was where all the SCAP records are, and just reading through all the documents and the censors, you know, all the things they're saying, and it's kind of the fascinating back and forth between the censors, the producers. And then also, um, as I talk about in the article, the two competing censoring bodies, the um, Civil Information Detachment and the uh, CINES, um, Civil in- uh, Information and Education. And they're fighting with each other over who has what ground and to say what, you know, who, who actually has control over everything. And, right. and it's, it's, a maze is a perfect metaphor for yeah. that. Yeah. You mentioned Donald Ritchie already as Mm -hmm. a really crucial figure for you in opening up this world. Um, And you've got a really nice little Afterthoughts essay that you did Mm -hmm. in reflecting back upon this um, research project and this article. Can you tell us more about about your interest in Donald Ritchie? Well, when I, going all the way back to the first, my, my the first research I did, which was actually on Rashomon, um, is for a seminar in Asian aesthetics, and that was kind of my introduction. And it just became almost immediately clear when I was just doing the research on this that Richie was the guy. You know, he laid the groundwork. He for everything. He was the that first person who helped introduce Western audiences to Japanese cinema. He was the kind of they were trying to translate it for us, and. Yeah, reading you know, reading through his many books that he's written, you know, on the films of Kurosawa and Japanese film industry. Um, I, I really like one of his more recent ones, "A Hundred Years of Japanese Cinema." I think is a great overview of everything. And he he sort of walk helps me walk through and you know how do I read these things? How do I read these symbols? Because he was also fascinated with just the aesthetics of Japanese culture, and you know he wrote. Um, more than just film, he wrote about Japanese culture and aesthetics and all these things. I re- just recently finished reading his uh, pseudo-biographical travelogue novel, The Inland Sea, and it's just a mm-hmm. beautiful reflection on Japanese culture in a transitional time in the 1970s. And then when I came across that Richie and Hayasaka knew each other, this was like that moment where I was like, oh, and now I have this context to put all of his comments about Hayasaka in, you know, because mm-hmm. obviously he writes about him extensively when talking about Kurosawa's films. Um, and the book that he did with Joseph Anderson, the Japanese film and industry, I think is the title, you know, he, he, he lambasts 
Japanese, um, the sound, just the sound of the films as being this art that is not well propped up. It's sort of the last thing they think about. And, but then he goes on to say, you know, about Hayasaka, you know, he is like the, you know, the exception, you know, the one who sort of rises above everything else. And it's kind of, it's like really interesting. Like, I agree with you, but I almost like have to think, is he also propping up this friend who, this very close friend of his, um, and I, like I said, like I said in the piece, I would have loved to have talked to him about it because Richie, as an American, would be, I think, more apt to talk openly about you know all of these issues where Jap- Japanese people are famously fairly reserved, and you know they they are always kind of like holding something back because they want to make sure everything's in the most positive light. They're very proper, very respectful, and they want to be very cautious about mm-hmm. everything. Oh, that's <laughs> that's so fascinating. Those are those amazing moments in doing archival work, right? Where you feel like you're starting to it just at least just a little bit get under the skin of these people and they become people, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's yeah. so exciting. Yeah. I, I I remember um I had ordered there there's so few like actual scores of musical scores of Hayasaka's available. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to see at Columbia University they had a score for one of Hayasaka's earliest pieces, Ancient Dances. So I requested it through Interlibrary Loan. And I will never forget this moment. I, I'm going in to pick it up. I pick it up, and as I'm turning to walk out, I you know just open up to look at it, and there on the title page, is, to Donald Ritchie cordially Fumio Hayasaka, uh-huh. and I just about fall over. I'm like, I can't believe I'm actually touching this. I have it, and then I'm like, I can't believe you sent this to me, <laughs> and that that's actually the image that's with my uh, little afterthoughts is. I you know of course I get it and I immediately go and do high quality scans of everything right you know and especially that title page just as you know it's it's like that tangible piece that was through the hands of both of them and that's what I love about archival research it's like you actually touch it and you get to handle it um and it just sort of puts makes it like you think you said it makes everything so much more real all right let's listen to just a little bit of that as we wrap up. How did this project fit into your larger dissertation work? Um, it was, it's, def- it's definitely one of my chapters and is one of the most important chapters because in my dissertation, the way it ended up was that I look at five different films of the post-war era, three with Kurosawa, two with Kenji Mizuguchi. And I sort of contrast Hayasaka's working relationships with both men. Drunken Angel, Rashomon, Seven Samurai, um, Sancho the Bailiff, Ugetsu, all these classic Japanese films from the 50s that we know and love in the West. Hayasaka was the one doing most of the scores. And for me, I think my primary goal here is that I want him, his reputation, to sort of be built up. And that's kind of what I hope, you know, where this is all going. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for offering such a compelling introduction to him and to his work. Thank you. Really enjoyed talking with you, Michael Harris. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me.
Well, Chris, I hope you weren't disappointed to learn that Bobby Darren was not actually uh, an Akira Kurosawa regular. Wait a minute, what? No, he wasn't. I know. And, you're, and you're in, tearing the lid off of something. I know, right? I know, I am. And, and, and actually, Mac the Knife was not written for Bobby Darren either. Oh, now you're destroying no, everything. I know. How do we go on? It's hopeless. We live in these little bubbles of, of American popular culture and probably ought to shake loose. Is nothing real anymore? Probably not. Mm. Well, SIGs are real. Let me tell you that. <laughs> They're really cool. Um, and in fact, I think you're going to be convinced by this real segment I put together All on right. SIGs. Giddy up. <laughs> I became interested in exploring the topic of this piece first through Phil Sapansky, who recently got his PhD from Northwestern and is currently adjuncting at Concordia University. Sapansky told me about his efforts to start a SIG, or scholarly interest group within SEMS, with a focus on comedy and humor studies. SIGs have really grown in prominence within SEMS over the past decade, but if you're still not familiar with them, they are, according to the SEMS website, groups comprised of SEMS members who share an interest in a particular medium, a genre, a methodology, the media of a particular nation or region, or any other subcategory within the rubric of cinnamon media studies. SIGs are formed and maintained to provide fellowship and networking opportunities for their members and to support scholarship pedagogy and mentoring within that particular area within SCMS. So to establish a SIG, one has to justify the reason for its existence to the SCMS board of directors. So that's what Phil Sapansky has to do for comedy and humor studies. You must also have at least 25 SCMS members committed to it. Once approved, the SIG has to maintain at least 25 members to stay in good standing, as well as provide an annual report to SCMS. In exchange, SIGs are granted meeting times at the annual conference, as well as a $500 a year uh, stipend to spend as they see fit. To join a SIG, you just join the SIG's group page on the SEMS website, and you are allowed to join as many as you want. So when I heard that Sapansky wanted to start a comedy and humor study SIG, I thought this sounded like a fine idea, but it also got me to thinking, what is the point of starting a new SIG? What can a SIG do for an area of study for individual scholars for SEMS? So I decided to talk to a few existing SIG leaders to find out what value they think uh, SIGs offer, but I started by asking Sapansky what he envisioned would be the advantage of having a SIG for comedy and humor studies. He told me that the idea initially came out of a small regional conference on television comedy we both attended last year at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I think I was inspired to some extent by that conference at Madison that John Gray had put on, in part because there were so many more people working on comedy than I had realized before then. And it made me wonder who else was out there that I didn't know about and who was doing really interesting work. So it made me wonder too then how we could draw more people into the field. And even as I started putting this together, people started coming out of the woodwork to, to say things like, oh, you know, I don't really specifically work on comedy or humor, but I'm really interested and I'd like to see where you guys are going. So I think that issue of visibility, and that's actually sounds peripheral to what the SIG missions are, but that seems to be perhaps the most important thing to me is just the ability to speak to other scholars that here we are and we're doing this stuff and come and talk to us, please. That plea for communication stems in part from hopes that the official status granted by a SIG will also bestow credibility on an area of study like comedy, Sapansky explains. Part of that reaching out to people who might be thinking about or, or maybe doing comedy work without labeling it as such is the idea that, you know, young scholars might not even realize that this is an option that there is a field of and a body of knowledge devoted specifically to humor theory and to comedy and things like that. Legitimacy is also an issue too. And 
I always feel like questions of legitimacy seem almost petty at times, but when you're talking about comedy, it is a it is a field or a, a text at least that delegitimizes itself at some level. So the ability to sort of get our name out there and get it recognized by SCMS seems to me like a way to show not only other scholars, but also publishers and people who might be putting together conferences that, you know, this is a, an actual legitimate, I don't want to call it a serious field because that sort of seems like a bit of a contradiction, but um, that it is a field that exists and has some, you know, some legitimate people working on it and, and saying interesting and important things about it. That fight for legitimacy was echoed by Daniel Reynolds, an assistant professor at Emory University and co-chair of the video game study SIG, when I asked him about the forming of his SIG by original founder Mark J.P. Wolf. In some ways I feel an affinity for this hypothetical comedy studies SIG because we're both both disciplines that are maybe regarded as non-serious some of the time. And I think one of the fights that Mark had to fight in getting the SIG off the ground was sort of convincing people that, you know, you can be serious about non-serious things, which I can see the comedy studies people having to deal with in the near future as well. In addition to legitimacy, Sapansky says he hopes the comedy SIG will help build bridges between areas of study that might not otherwise intersect, like radio studies and animation, or between North American media studies and European and Asian media studies. I also feel like And this is partly probably because humor is more culturally specific than, say, drama or action. But the humor scholars I know are so America-centric, myself included. You know, I work on this idea of national trauma and how humor deals with that. But I think everyone could really benefit from some cross-cultural conversation there, too. So I'd really like to, you know, start to get in touch with maybe some European scholars, some scholars from Southeast Asia, from East Asia, and see, you know, what they might have to say. That idea of a SIG bringing together people who don't know of each other's work or even that a subdiscipline exists was a theme across all of the SIG interviews I conducted. For instance, here is Austin Fisher, senior lecturer at the University of Bedfordshire and co-chair of the Transnational Cinema SIG, explaining how his group's focus has interdisciplinary benefits and even complicates the notion that these are niche areas of study. The most tangible benefit has been that it brings together scholars from diverse backgrounds, but also from diverse disciplinary areas of SCMS. Because actually what it's done, by having a methodological focus, it's highlighted how lots of different approaches and lots of different research areas have got notable parallels. So I found myself talking to scholars of French cinema, scholars of Japanese cinema, who perhaps I wouldn't have talked to at a conference normally, but because we've got this focus around the transnational element of cinema, we've been talking about our common approaches and thinking about how we might be able to collaborate in future. And actually it's, come, it's made us realise that our SIG is not as niche as we thought. People keep approaching us asking if their research fits our SIG. And it's highlighted to us that all cinema is transnational. So it's, um, it's actually been a very useful intellectual process around concepts as well. Along those lines, Martin Johnson, an assistant professor at Catholic University of America and co-chair of the non-theatrical film and media SIG, says SIGs can also help make scholars feel less isolated, fostering more of a feeling of community among scholars. I think it's given people who are interested in what were previously thought of as the kind of margins of film and media study, a home where they can do that work and realize that there are other scholars who are actively engaged in this kind of study. So if you're interested in, for example, films about farming technique or films about kind of industrial production, that seems like a very minor field of study. You might have a set of work you're interested in. 
But when you join the SIG and when you sort of realize that people who are working on educational film, people who are working on other types of industrial film, people who are working on home movies are engaged in the same kinds of methodological, research-oriented, even theoretical questions that you are. I think it gives people a sense that there's a community of scholars working in this field. That notion of community, of course, becomes crucial when you consider what a large organization SCMS has become. Of course, it's dwarfed by groups like the MLA, but many old vets of SCMS conferences have commented in recent years on how huge the conference is getting, in some ways to the detriment of productive conversations or even coherent experiences. Austin Fisher has attended only two SEMS conferences, but across the one-year existence of the Transnational Cinema SIG he co-chairs, he's seen the difference a SIG can make in creating almost a sub-conference of sorts. It helps to make what is a, a huge conference more manageable, essentially. And so if delegates are interested in our area, they can join our SIG, they can follow our Facebook page, they can sign up for our Twitter feed. So during the conference and before it and after it, it, it can help them navigate what is, let's face it, a very big conference, and it can be quite bewildering. So it helps you to sort of steer your way through your interests if you follow a SIG. What we didn't do in Chicago, and what we probably should have done, and what we're going to do in Seattle, is put a program together. So of panels, of workshops that we're sponsoring, but also of anything else that seems relevant to our remit and relevant to our SIG, if we put our own kind of mini conference program or pamphlet together, we could then hand that out, put it on our Twitter feed, so people interested in our area could sort of steer their way through a, a mini conference, as it were. I think it's also important to note that I've only been going to SEMS for two years. So um, I, I'm learning quite a lot about it at a, at a very rapid pace, but it also shows how friendly a society it is. I think sometimes people have a misinterpretation of SEMS that it's because it's so big, it's anonymous, that you don't get noticed, that you're kind of swallowed up in a crowd. So yeah, SIGs help to mitigate against that and they help to underline how everyone there is actually very friendly and eager to talk. It's just that there are so many people there that it can be bewildering. The meeting time available at the annual conference can also be invaluable to compare notes on key issues within areas of interest. Daniel Reynolds, again co-chair of the Video Game Studies SIG, has found the SIG meetings valuable, for instance, to talk about pedagogy with other members of SEMS. The SIG provides this sort of opportunity for them to get together in a, an environment that they're already sort of involved in get together in a kind of sub-environment there and talk to people with similar interests, but also sort of figure out what the state of the field, the sub-discipline, whatever you want to call it is, meet other people who are working toward things like planning classes. You know, I think it's been a great pedagogical resource for people. How to teach video games is a still a very open question. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it will remain that way for a long time. But, there, you know, there are a lot of sort of mechanical problems or difficulties in teaching video games, too. You know, you can't screen a video game the way you can screen a film. And so, you know, one of the things we really get together or do when we get together is talk about practical questions like that. SIGs can also be useful at the SEMS conference for outreach, bringing together not just members within the organization, but scholars from other organizations and even members of the general public. Daniel Reynolds told me of a great event the Video Game Studies SIG arranged with the stipend SEMS grants each SIG each year, that's $500, and they used theirs at the Boston conference in 2012. We were able to invite Ralph Baer, who is the uh, inventor of the first home video game system, the Magnavox Odyssey, uh, which came out in 1971, I think. He lives in New Hampshire, and I, you know, I was able to drive up to New Hampshire and pick him up and bring him back down. He's in his early 90s. Uh, he spoke for 45 minutes on his life as an inventor, an inventor of, you know, an innovator of video games. And then we, we gave him a, 
an 80th birthday cake shaped like a Magnavox Odyssey at the end. So, um, it was just a, a lovely experience, you know, and um, I think a real energizing experience for the people who were just getting into or had been in the SIG for a couple of years. Along similar lines, uh, Martin Johnson's non-theatrical film SIG has had two outreach events in the past year that have pushed beyond the usual confines of SCMS panels, and one took place at last year's Chicago conference. This past year, though, I think we did two things that were really great. So the first was actually at SCMS, and we put together a screening of non-theatrical films made in Chicago. So the screening was actually coordinated by the Chicago Film Archives, and so we provided the funding and some of the coordination in terms of logistics, and we were able to attract roughly 50 people. I think most of them were SCMS members, but also a few people from the general public. So that was a really nice kind of way to bring people together in an environment that was part of the conference, but it's not sitting in a stale conference room listening to people read papers and show digital video. You can actually see 60-millimeter film projected, which is a, a real treat. The other activity we've done this year is we helped organize a conference that was connected to the Orphans Midwest Film Symposium. So in many ways, the Orphan Film Symposium, which started in 1999, is a way to kind of highlight films that were orphaned, abandoned by their owners, and films that really kind of were the material that was be, would have been shown in these non-theatrical contexts. So at the, at the symposium, we put together a graduate student conference. We had speakers from seven universities, and we, we ended up having roughly 35, 50 people in attendance for the entire day, which we did not expect. So I get there at nine in the morning and see Tom Gunning is there in the front row, ready to engage students, uh, graduate students who are presenting on topics related to non-theatrical film and media. So that was a really exciting move and development for us. Outreach is also a goal uh, Phil Sapansky has for the Comedy and Humor Studies SIG, and he sees opportunities, especially for scholars, to offer their expertise beyond academia. There's other little projects that could sort of use some humor scholar input. There's a Museum of American Humor that's starting up in New York, and I've been talking to the director there. So she's someone that I'd actually really like to hopefully get to um, maybe come to our meeting and talk to us about how the media studies scholars could help her put together a really awesome Museum of American Humor. In a similar vein, Martin Johnson's non-theatrical SIG is working on a website to house materials for study, and I think this shows how an individual SIG's efforts can really move beyond just that SIG and create materials that all of SCMS and even the public can utilize. Our newest initiative, which we're still kind of in the planning stages for, is the launch of a website, which is titled Circulation Desk. It's circulationdesk.org. And the intention of this website is for people to post material that they find intriguing, that's either collected in sort of their search through archives or perhaps something they find online that they don't really understand. The challenge of doing research in non-theatrical film and media is that you don't have the kinds of canonical histories that you have in, other, in film and media studies more generally. So there's not a AFI series on the history of non-theatrical film. So I think that the Circulation Desk will give scholars an opportunity to share their work, to make connections with others, and to, I think, and hopefully kind of actually build up a body of knowledge about non-theatrical film and media production, distribution, exhibition, um, much of which is still we're fairly hazy about. The SIG chairs I spoke to also had some good ideas for improving SIGs, from offering them more input into conference uh, proposal selection in their areas of study, to offering the SIGs money in three-year increments rather than one year, so they can decide how to allot the money across a chair's tenure, such as saving up for one big event at a conference. I also asked a few folks to offer advice to the proposed comedy and humor studies SIG should it get approved. First, from Austin Fisher. 
going by our own experience of how we started off, um, the first thing to do is to approach the most eminent names in your field. Just identify the, the globally renowned scholars in your remit and just approach them directly and ask them if there'll be a signatory. I was slightly tentative about doing that at first, but there's one thing that it's taught me forming this SIG, and that's that world-renowned academics whose work you've been reading for the last decade or two are usually very friendly, very helpful, often very pleased and flattered to be asked to partake in something. So I think it's just a way of fomenting networks and making you realise that SCMS brings us all together from various stages of our careers, really. And Martin Johnson also stressed that having a deep bench of members willing to uh, help out and work across the year is important, especially when the original co-chairs, the people who founded the SIG, are no longer in charge. I think it's important to have a large collection of committed people. For example, Oliver Gakin and Kirsten Oster, who were the ones kind of behind the SIG when it was started, are not very involved in the SIG at this point. So they will vote in the elections, but they're not the ones who are still kind of actively planning things for the future. And so it's important to have a kind of second, third, fourth tier of people ready to kind of step in uh, when the time comes for them to be a co-chair, when it's time to organize an event. So all of those kinds of activities is really helpful to have a large group of people who are not just one to kind of sign up and kind of be counted as one of the 25 people you need to start a SIG, but also willing to kind of do the work that you need to make the SIG valuable. I think we've seen that the annual meeting is nice, but that's not really where the work of the SIG happens. The work of the SIG happens either before the annual meeting and planning events or in the ongoing relationships that are formed throughout the year. As this indicates, there are a lot of opportunities for mentoring in SIGs, and this is exactly an area where Sapansky hopes the Comedy and Humor Studies SIG can have an impact in reflecting here on his own past experiences. And then the other thing I'm hoping, and this is actually something I'm, I'm looking at for myself, but obviously if I'm doing it, it's going to bring other people into the, into the conversation, but I'm also hoping it um, happens independent of me, but in a way to try to encourage like writing partnerships and bigger projects, you know, like potentially book collections and things like that. And this is something actually, again, to sort of refer back to the, the Madison people that, you know, I think in, in my graduate school career, I was timid about getting publications out there. And it's something I'm actually suffering from now being on the job market and seeing how productive the, some of the Madison people have been, not just in collaborating, but being out there and getting things moving in a way that requires a bit of collaboration and a bit of bravery. And I hope that this is something we can, we can really offer not only to one another, but to younger scholars that maybe could have used some of that the kick in the butt that I needed about three years ago. And that sense of SIG can have an impact on the future of a discipline and even on SEMS as an organization. Martin Johnson said something to me along those lines. I've been very happy to see this area of film and media study kind of be supported through SEMS. It's something that even when I started as an undergraduate 10 years ago, 15 years ago, wasn't really there or sort of thought of something you could do in film and media studies. So I think SIGs are really helpful in spotlighting really what the future of these, of these disciplines are. So it's not just kind of what's canonical, but also what people might be working on and talking about 10, 15, 20 years from now. And in terms of the future, this segment does have a happy ending, as I found out following my interview with Sapansky that the Comedy and Humor Studies SIG was approved by SCMS for inclusion. So we have a successful SIG story here, and we will put on our website a link to the SCMS SIG page, which lists all of the currently existing SIGs. If you don't see one of your areas of research interest there, you might want to start your own SIG, and Phil Sapansky invites you to ask him for advice about how to do so. 
I suppose I would uh, invite any of your listeners who want to start a new SIG to talk to me because I hopefully will have some insight that uh, doesn't necessarily come through uh, in the instructions on the website. And I would like to invite any of the listeners who are interested even remotely in comedy and or humor studies to uh, get in touch with us on our Facebook page for now. So we'll link on our website to SEMS's list of the existing SIGs, and we really encourage you to go check that out right now. Um, as Austin Fisher talked about, there his SIG, the Transnational Center, is putting together kind of a mini conference program for your area of interest, and I assume some of the other SIGs are as well. So yes, they generally do. So it's a really good time to check in and see what see what kinds of things might be on the schedule in March. Mm-hmm. Got to plan ahead for that huge right. conference. The sooner you can plan ahead, the more you can organize, the That's better right. experience it'll be. Well, nothing says TV season like uh, 14 degrees outside and snowing. True. Uh, so you watching anything good? I did just last night watch, um, first of all, I watch a whole bunch of football, which um, I'm a Bears fan, so let's just move on from there. Mm, um, but the uh, the main thing I watched last night, I watched the finale of Treme, David Simon's mm-hmm. Treme on HBO, David Simon and Eric Overmeyer's Treme is, is all wrapped up. And I thought the finale was was beautiful, very fitting for the show. It's a show I greatly enjoyed, deeply appreciated. I don't know if I ever really loved it. Its storytelling style is about glimpses, moments, scenes, rather than so much, you know, arcs and, and narrative trajectories. Um, I also think it's a show that has the widest gap between great acting and poor acting mm-hmm. I may have ever seen because, of course, they want to bring in actual real-life people and jazz musicians playing themselves. And acting is a craft, like playing uh, an instrument, and you can't have just anybody do it. So it was always you would get wrapped up in a scene, and then some terrible actor would come on and kind of diffuse it. Um, mm-hmm. And yet the experience of watching these real people in um, these kind of real moments, watching the music, the food, um, these, you know, incredible characters, the likes of which just aren't on other TV shows, I really deeply appreciate it. So I don't know that I ever really loved it or really engaged with it even in the way that I did The Wire. Um, <laughs> but I, I greatly appreciated the experience of Tremaine. I'll miss it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing quite like it on TV. I have to catch up on that. I haven't finished up that last season yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I took part in one of the other great media traditions of of the wintertime seasons, and I went out and watched the next segment of The Hobbit. Uh Uh-huh. The Desolation of Smaug. Smaug. And your verdict? Well, you know, it's a... You can just feel the video games and the and the carnival rides being written out of it. I mean, like really? the the entire second half of the film just is completely made up. Mm. It doesn't have, it has virtually no connection to the book at all. Now maybe that makes me some kind of like goofy, nerdy curmudgeon, but I don't know. Just I kind of would have liked to have just seen The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. So maybe just yeah, a two hour movie two hours heck make it three somehow very good movies have been made with only like one text that's about two hours it is Mm. possible i think you know i think there is some precedent for that kind of narrative model so Mm -hmm. you know that probably makes me cranky but so it goes well there's a ton of movies out there uh it's oscar i started to say oscar bait season that's probably not that polite it's it is oscar release season uh and so just a ton of movies out there which i haven't had time to go see because i'm mired in syllabus writing and article writing and Mm -hmm. stuff so this is of course always the bane of the media studies scholar you don't have time to watch 
movies or TV shows because you're too busy teaching and researching movies and TV shows. Indeed. Here's one I've been trying to catch up on, though. Uh, thinking about teaching a little bit of Duck Dynasty this Duck semester. Duck Dynasty. Yeah. Hot topic. It's a pretty hot topic, and so I figured I needed to catch up on it a little bit. And I've watched two episodes, and I think I've, I think I've pretty well gotten under the you, skin, you, or it's gotten under my skin. or <laughs> In yeah. a good way? or yeah, Not in a terribly not, good way, but, okay. you know. Yeah. I think I've got the pulse of it now. Right. That's probably going to be enough. Yeah, and so you, that would be with your intro class. You would. Yeah, bring I think that I'm going to use that in my in my basics class, talking about um, relationship between networks and audiences and interest groups of various sorts, different mm-hmm. kind of interest groups. Yeah, yeah, all sorts. Yeah, as as we've been reading over the past two weeks. Indeed, Acamedia is produced with the support of the University of Notre Dame and ISLA, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University. We are also sponsored by SCMS and Cinema Journal, of course. And we would like to thank our episode participants, Michael Harris, Phil Sapansky, Daniel Reynolds, Martin Johnson, and Austin Fisher. We would be lost without our co-producers, Bill Kirkpatrick, who is... Oh my God, yeah, has tenure. Has the tenure. tenured Bill Kirkpatrick. The tenured Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison. We congratulate him for that. And Todd Thompson, whose golden years make it all sound good. And also thank you to Jillian Meisner, our production assistant. And finally, just last thoughts of uh, places you can follow ACA Media. We have a Facebook page. We have a website, ACA-media.org. We have a Twitter feed at ACA underscore media. I have a Twitter feed, CRS Becker. Michael, I suppose I'm, you have a Twitter feed. I'm at M. Kackman. In fact, that you, you can't possibly not follow us. We're so many places. And we'll be back in February with much more fun to come. All right. See ya. Good luck with the start of the semester, everybody. Thank you.